Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Kathy Kelly and Brenda Sandberg, and for the first time, senior editor Jessica Merrill of our commercial team. Welcome. Today is August 12th, 2021. We're going to start today looking at development in Europe and its potential implications in the U.S., Bluebird Bio decided this week to pull its gene therapy business from the EU, which raised a lot of questions about that sector. Jessica, you worked on this story. What did you find out? Hey, Derek. Thanks for having me on, everyone. Uh, Yeah, so Bluebird Bio announced a disappointing development for gene therapy and commercializing these expensive one-time drugs, essentially, in Europe. Uh, So the company announced on August 9th that it would exit the European commercial market for its gene therapy business and prioritize the U.S. market instead. And this news comes two years after the company's gene therapy, Zintegla, was approved by European regulators for the rare disease transfusion-dependent beta-thalassemia, or TDD. So this is a rare condition in which people have to undergo chronic blood transfusions. And then on top of that, just weeks ago in July, a second gene therapy from Bluebird uh, LSL was approved in Europe for uh, a severe neurodegenerative de- condition. Uh, I'm going to go with the abbreviation, CALD, uh, and it's sold under the brand name Skysona. So this development could be really disappointing for these patients looking for access to these medicines, but it also raises more uncertainty about the reimbursement environment for expensive gene therapies more broadly. Um, and then a par- an important part of the backdrop of this story is that Bluebird is in the midst of a big structural change and then it's poised to separate into two companies, one that will remain Bluebird and focus on severe genetic disease and gene therapy, and then a second that will be called 270Bio focused on oncology. And that's all set to transpire in the fourth quarter. So this latest development sets a bit of a grim tone for the separation of the gene therapy business uh, as it looks to move forward independently. And Bluebird's management is saying, hey, we're a small company. We can't afford to wait this out any longer, funding the commercial infrastructure and everything. So we're going to prioritize the U.S. market instead. Uh, And meanwhile, investors are really uh, not liking the news that they're hearing from Bluebird. On top of that, there was also a clinical trial hold for LSL in the U.S. in a CALD patient um, who uh, was diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndromes. So uh, the stock price is down more than 50% for the year. And if you look back, um, it's lost like more than like 10 billion in market cap since 2018, when it was really viewed at the cutting edge of gene therapy and a lot of excitement about the potential of these drugs. Wow, that's interesting. Um, So the obvious question here, of course, is how will this impact the U.S. gene therapy market? I mean, what does the company think the situation is like in the U.S. compared to Europe? Yeah, so management has said that uh, they're more optimistic about the U.S. because it's a very different market. Europe is obviously uh, has a different reimbursement situation where companies negotiate with single government payers. And in this instance, Bluebird was unable to secure reimbursement from governments. Uh, So most recently, the U.K. health technology assessment, NICE, said it would not reimburse Zintegla this year. And in April, the company said it failed to reach an agreement with Germany, which was probably the nail in the coffin because they were really expecting that they could uh, launch first in Germany. And the Netherlands also said they wanted Bluebird to reduce the price and agree for a price performance deal. 
the company thinks the U.S. situation will be different because it's a more diverse group of payers, government and private payers, and they plan to file for TDD this year, uh, so it could be approved next year. And they say they're more optimistic. Uh, we do have one example of a pretty successful commercial gene therapy in the U.S., which is Zolgensma from Novartis for spinal mu muscular atrophy. It's become a blockbuster drug slowly over time. So um, I guess we'll have to see how it goes. You know, just this really plays into the narrative about international reference pricing that's going on right now in the U.S., <laughs> where, you know, um, pharma is arguing that efforts to basically import pricing from markets abroad doesn't make any sense because look at the lack of access that they have over there as a result of price controls. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if they sort of point to this example as as one, you know, argument against going that route. Yeah, the one thing that I wonder about, though, is even long term, is the U.S. a sustainable marketplace for gene therapies if we get a lot of them and yeah. they continue to be at these price levels? It's one thing for some of these payers to sustain the prices in the U.S. when we just have a couple and they're, you know, generally for very rare disease populations. But obviously people are very much looking at what happens if, you know, a hemophilia gene therapy gets approved here, which might have a bigger population, particularly if um, Medicaid is heavily impacted in the U.S. where they have fairly constrained budgets. So I think that obviously the U.S. is probably a much more attractive and easier to deal with pricing market than Europe, but it's not, it might not be that way forever if, you know, gene therapies really take off. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you hear payers talk about how, sure, these are, you know, drugs, these very expensive drugs are for small populations, but when you start getting a, a you know, a fairly large number of them approved, all of a sudden, you know, the critical mass sort of builds and you have, you have this expense that is unsustainable, as they say, so... Well, in this case, it's interesting that, uh, you know, Bluebird's, I guess, leverage was that the offset in the cost of chronic blood transfusions, you know, would justify the cost over a long period of time. And they weren't really able to to make sell that case mm -hmm. uh, to government payers who, I guess, had a lot of questions about the long term you know, benefit and if that would really hold up over the long term. And until there's, I guess, this data from some of these gene therapies that, yeah, hey, they'll last a lifetime or they'll last 20 years. It's it's a hard case to make. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can see the lack of data being a problem. But, you know, the single payer systems are in some ways in a better situation than we are here in the U.S. because there's this argument about how, say, if one payer, you know, invests in one of these high cost treatments and then the patient moves on to a different payer, they don't reap the benefits and that wouldn't be the case, you know, in a single payer system, they they would presumably reap the benefits down the road. Right. So I do want to mention along those lines um, about this whole, I guess, installment payment model that some gene therapy makers have talked about or floated as an option where uh, a payer would pay reimburse a certain amount over several years. Um, and one thing that really struck me about this story with Bluebird is that 
they came out really strong um, with a pricing installment model when this therapy launched in 2019. I remember talking to the CEO, Nick Lacey, about this pricing strategy for the product, and he was really um, ambitious about and resolute, I guess, about going to market with this model and this being the only option. Um, so to pay 315,000 euros a year for five years, a uh, total price of more than one and a half million euros for for the for Zinteglo. And, you know, I guess it makes me wonder how they'll how they'll be reevaluating that for the U.S. market. Uh, on the other hand, Novartis has said they haven't had a lot of success with a, a model like that for Zolgensma in the U.S. and that most payers have just wanted to pay the full upfront cost. Mm -hmm. uh, so. I think yeah. that might be something to think about. There's another, there's another thing here that yeah, our colleague Maureen Kenny wrote a piece that um, for for uh, on this as well. And and one of the things is she brought up that I thought was really interesting, and it kind of it kind of makes you you know it, it kind of justifies their their decision to focus on the U.S. as opposed to to Europe. Is that she was saying that it, it looks like now that a new therapy that a, they think addresses the root cause of a disease that can be, you know, you know, uh, you know, as as debilitating as as some of these rare diseases are, is clearly not enough to justify the prices that they're being sought. And, and you know, we talked about this a little bit already, but it just that doesn't seem to be our philosophy in the U.S. And maybe I don't know, I maybe maybe I'm just not seeing it. But you wonder, like you said, if you know, we get to a point where we have a lot of these gene therapies that we hit, you know, the U.S. will start kind of you know, rethinking that maybe. I think that is, you know, much more of a concern for payers. We may not be hearing that argument or, you know, that concern for manufacturers, but I think payers are, you know, worried about the lack of data on the sort of long-term effects of these drugs. And I think one thing to look out for will be the success of Zolgensma in Europe. It was just approved in 2020 there. Uh, and I think that's just starting to sort of be expanded in Europe, and we'll have to see how that strategy goes. Yeah, it's a very interesting issue, and probably something that we may, you know, U.S. officials will be looking at just as much as European officials will be. Also, I think our European colleagues will be looking more to see how patients can access these drugs in Europe, or anything that Bluebird might do. They said they would explore alternatives for getting these drugs to patients, so um, that's something else to think about. Maybe you see some medical tourism to the U.S. Next, we're going to look at Eli Lilly's TV ads that many of us saw during the Olympics. Brenda, they raised some questions in particular about whether they were pushing the limits of FDA regulations. Um, yeah, there were three uh, TV commercials for three Lilly drugs, diabetes, migraine, and cancer. And what was really striking about them were the disclaimers in the ads for Trulicity and um, there were disclaimers that the that um, for Chelicity that um, Lori Hernandez's father is diabetic, and he was in the ad with her. And there were in a very small, superimposed text uh, a statement that he didn't take the drug. And the same with Mgality. Ryan Murphy, the swimmer, was. Um, was in the ad and there was during um the commercial uh, very briefly appeared this superimposed text he didn't take it while the um another athlete that appeared with him she did a voiceover and she did take the drug and she talked about taking it so 
it was striking um, that this happened, and I looked for an other example of an instance where a celebrity endorsed a product and they didn't take it. And I looked through our archives going back like 20 years and couldn't find anything. But the question was, is this okay? That they was this disclaimer enough? And so, was it misleading? Did you did it leave the reader, the viewer, with the idea that they actually took the drug? And when, when FDA looks at that decides whether or not a drug is misleading, they look to see how prominent the disclaimer is and what the net impression of the ad is. So it is it, it raises a question. Someone said to me, well, th that's a good question. Is it misleading? Um, and FDA doesn't really have guidance on this. Um, they they have they treat celebrity endorsements as if they are the company spokes as if someone is a company spokesperson. And some, I talked to um, Joseph Broth at Yale. He did a study with his colleagues a few years ago looking at broadcast ads, and he they really advocated that FDA um, come up with guidance on, on this and regulations that are, are clear because, you know, it's, it's, it's unclear whether or not what companies are doing uh, is okay. And he said the Lilly ads were within the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, and that... Um, it was misleading to tie a product to an athlete or family member that didn't actually take it. So um, it's unclear, too, whether Lilly submitted the ads to FDA for review ahead of time. These companies sometimes do that. Uh, and FDA doesn't, like, give a yes or no, up or down vote of, of approval, but they'll give advisory comments back. And um, this may have happened, um, but it, it doesn't mean that... Um, that a company has to follow them, the company doesn't have to follow them. And it also doesn't mean that FDA will take action if, if they don't follow the the, the suggestions. And, and another thing that um, had a few years ago or several years ago, Pharma came up with the guiding principles for um, DTC broadcast advertising. And they said that you, a company should verify implied endorsements and including whether or not a, a the endorser has used the product, and 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 Lily did abide by that. It does have the disclaimer for two of the ads, and I just mentioned the third one for Verzenio that featured the uh, beach volleyball beach volleyball player April Ross, who won the gold medal with her partner. Um, and you know, one of the highlights it was got a lot of airtime in prime time. I saw that commercial several times, and it was introduced as in loving memory of her mother who who died of breast cancer. And there was no mention on there whether or not her mother took it, but um, given that the images showed her and her mother when she was young and the drug was approved, I think it was in 2017, um, she wouldn't have taken it. I saw that ad several times too, Brendan. My impression was, you know, it was sort of like what might have been if that drug had been available to her mother. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, on the celebrity endorsement thing, um, I know I'm dating myself, but um, there was a big controversy in the late 80s, early 90s about Mickey Mantle endorsing a drug for arthritis called Voltaren. And um, I think in the end, uh, the, the marketer ended up um, discontinuing the use of, of him in commercials, you know, aimed at regular audiences and, and he may have just focused promotions on a professional audience. But I think in that case, he did, um, I, I just looked it up, he did participate in clinical trials on Voltaren. So I guess you could say he did 
he did take the drug at least at one time, so it wasn't quite the same issue. I think the the problem or the controversy at that time centered around just him being such a huge, you know, sports figure and, you know, the influence that he might have and it was that appropriate or whatever. Um, and there have been other, you know, major sports figures, I think, since that time, too. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting here. You wonder if almost if, you know, you, that maybe some kind of something like this could kind of spur the FDA either to, you know, release, you know, whether it's finished guidance, if they were working on it or, you know, you know, start working on guidance or even if it's, you know, if they decide to to do an enforcement action, maybe that's something that could kind of they could clarify, you know, the state of play a little bit if it's, you know, this is, uh, you know, kind of a gray area or something. Also, there were a, a couple of enforcement actions um, against celebrity ads, not against the celebrities, but against the ads, like the Kardashians um, this year and um, so a few years ago, Khloe Kardashian this year and Kim Kardashian about their 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 promotion of drugs on their social media sites. The FDA took issue with the fact that there was a lack of risk information in in those um, promotions, and in in the case of Lily's drugs, they all included extensive risk information, the typical commercial risk information. Also, they had um, corresponding patient on patient websites for these drugs that the athletes were featured too, and and they included risk information. And also they included a disclaimer. That's interesting. <clears throat> another another area that, you know, you're you're constantly pushing the boundaries and, you know, even in the Olympics, it, it you know, it, it, it pops up and, and uh, you know, at least it sparks some uh, some 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 ink to be used. So finally, today we're going to revisit a regulation that very few people thought would be enacted, yet still was in play for quite a while. Kathy, you covered the end of the most favored nation rule for us. What did you find out? <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think it was expected that this this was a Trump era rule, one of those um, sort of late in the term rules that the administration rushed out. Um, it um, was withdrawn by the, well, proposed, the Biden administration proposed to withdraw it on uh, August 6th. Um, and basically what the rule would have done is set up a demonstration project within the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation um, that would have used international reference pricing to set Medicare reimbursement for Part B drugs at a much lower rate than they currently uh, are reimbursed. Um, in the proposal to withdraw the rule, CMS explained that the withdrawal was based on procedural issues um, that had been identified by the courts in several lawsuits that had been filed against the most favored nation rule, and also on stakeholder concerns with the start date, which had been January 1st, 2021. Um, the, the withdrawal also left the door or leaves the door open to further executive action on Part B prices. Um, you know, it was notable in the proposed rule that CMS didn't offer any concerns with the substance of the rule and, in fact, pointed out that the withdrawal should not be taken as an indication of how HHS might approach future policy. Um, the agency, you know, says they 
The uh, HHS continues to explore opportunities to address the high cost of Part B drugs, manufacturer pricing, and the resulting growth in Part B spending. Um, you know, spending on Part B drugs is relatively small compared to Part D. Um, it was around $40 billion in 2019 versus spending of like $100 billion in Part D. But the issue with Part B is that, you know, that the growth in spending has been more rapid. Um, there was a recent study by the University of Pittsburgh that showed a 34% uh, growth in spending from 2008 to 2016. And, you know, growth is only expected to continue and even accelerate with these other expensive Part B drugs coming along. Part B drugs are those that are um, administered by physicians. And Aduhelm, you know, the new drug for Alzheimer's disease is, is a case in point um, there. Um, I'll just add the administration is sort of positioning itself, finally, <laughs> to offer some specifics on its drug pricing plans in the near future. Biden recently issued an executive order that included an endorsement of some policies like importation from Canada and reforms of pay-for-delay patent settlements and also indicated support for margin rights where, where the government seizes control of the patent of a drug that's considered to be too expensive and that has benefited from government-sponsored research. Um, the order also directed HHS Secretary Becerra to develop a comprehensive plan for drug pricing reform by August 23rd. And, you know, stakeholders are, you know, will be watching closely for that to come out. Um, also this morning, Biden is scheduled to make a speech about drug pricing. Um, he's expected to focus on, you know, what Congress should do to rein in uh, pricing, including government price negotiation and Medicare, uh, caps on out-of-pocket spending in Part D, um, and also administrative action, things that the administration can do, you know, via regulation without needing legislation, you know, including importation and um, action that encourages the uptake of generics and biosimilars. And then finally, in terms of um, legislative action on drug pricing, you know, as the Senate continues to work on its second infrastructure uh, plan, we'll, we'll see more detail about what drug pricing spending offsets will be included. Those are... Um, those are expected to come from the Senate Finance Committee and the chairman of the committee, Ron Wyden, has announced support for HHS price negotiation in Medicare, price inflation rebates and out-of-pocket caps in, in Part D. Um, it's not clear whether Wyden will, will just adopt H.R. 3, that's the House passed drug pricing bill you know, or whether he'll make adjustments to that. Um, one thing I'm watching for is whether Wyden will support the use of international reference pricing to lower Medicare costs, which is part of HR3, or, you know, whether he will move more toward developing sort of a homegrown system of evaluating the cost effectiveness of new drugs, and that would inform, you know, price negotiation between the U.S. government and manufacturers. So that's sort of where we are. You know, we can talk about, you know, prospects for this next infrastructure bill and for, you know, any major um, pricing legislation, if you'd like. I was going to say the the major drug pricing is supposed to be one of the major offsets in the upcoming yes, reconciliation bill, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, you know, but there's a lot of resistance to this this bill. It's it's right now the plan is um, three point five trillion in spending. Um, you know, Republicans are really opposed and even, you know, some Democrats are worried about the cost. So, 
if this is the best chance for, you know, major pricing legislation like, you know, government price negotiation to pass, you know, kind of in the near term, it seems it seems kind of questionable to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I keep, you know, part of my brain says that, the you know, of these ideas that have been floated, that negotiating, negotiating prices might be the most, you know, sensible, reasonable, whatever word you want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, you know, as, as soon as everyone gets mobilized against it, you know, who knows if it, you know, if it, if it has a chance of getting over the finish line. Yeah. Well, you, you know, Biden has expressed support for it, you know, consistently, and um, there's a lot of support, you know, among Democrats for uh, price negotiation. It's something that Republicans have opposed, you know, ever since Part D, the, the you know, the the law uh, and, you know, implementing Part D was, was enacted and um, uh, pharma has continued to fight tooth and nail against price negotiation in Medicare. So um, it'll be a challenge for them, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, there's like a specific clause in the Part D legislation that said you will not negotiate prices yeah. or something like that. Yeah, the non-interference <laughs> clause, right? That was something that Pharma got, you know, um, included in the law. That was a big victory for them, um, and that's what they've been defending ever since. And the key thing for to watch, I think, with Biden's speech today is, you know, this idea of international reference pricing, most favored nation kind of thing could come back because he indicated in his sort of preview documents of the speech that, you know, he obviously wants to do Medicare drug price negotiation and um, notes that he realizes you need some sort of leverage to actually Mm -hmm. get those prices lowered, but he didn't really specify what he's thinking that is. So um, obviously we know House Democrats have wanted to use the international reference pricing concept similar to what Trump had been thinking of using, though more for Part B. So we'll see if Biden sticks um, with that or comes up with any new ideas. I mean, that seems to be the thing with this on the Senate side is they maybe are not as into that um, plan, but you do need um, some kind of stick because CBO has previously said before without something like formularies or some other leverage, it doesn't actually save much money to have Medicare negotiate drug prices. Yeah, that's right. And what that what HR three did was impose these um, really um, kind of draconian penalties on manufacturers that aren't willing to kind of comply with negotiations with the government. Um, and that was that was sort of the stick that they that they came up with. Um, so it is, that's definitely an issue about, you know, what what the Senate would come up with um, for that, for leverage. Another issue that just doesn't want to go away, it seems like. <laughs> well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, Jessica Merrill, and Brenda Sandberg. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 